Our first reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, the divine name revealed. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. A second reading this morning, and it is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to find the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? and you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It may be a function of my line of work, but it seems to me that a lot of people seem to spend a lot of time talking about matters of belief. Do you really believe in God? I'm asked, often by people who are struggling to understand the perceived inconsistency of an apparently rational and sane human being believing something that appears irrational and quite possibly insane. Sometimes the question is more nuanced and comes from a place of personal questioning. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Will you pray for me? 
Sometimes the question feels designed to test me. Do you believe in the virgin birth, in the resurrection, in the Trinity? And sometimes the question seems designed to trap me. Do you believe in the ordination of women? Do you believe in same-gender marriage? And so I could go on. Do you believe? Do you believe? Or perhaps more pertinently, in what do you believe? Or even in whom do you believe? This is an important and surprisingly contemporary issue. And our passages this morning take us right to the heart of this question of belief. We come to this question today as part of our post-Pentecost sermon series in which we're looking at what it means to be the church and perhaps more specifically, what it means to be this church here in Bloomsbury. Last week, Ruth started our series by inviting us to consider what it might mean to say that God calls a church. And today we're taking a a step back from that to ask the question of who this God that calls us might be. I mean, it's all very well speaking of the church as the people of God. But if we don't have at least a working hypothesis of who God is, we're going to struggle to work out what the church of God might look like. And whilst at one level this might seem like a very straightforward question, at another level, it's a very difficult one to answer. So, who is God? Or perhaps even more basic than who is God, we might just start by asking ourselves, is God? Does God exist? Does God exist, says the person from their deathbed, to which I will say, yes, I do believe that God exists. The questions of what God is like, of who God is, of how God can be known, are, it seems to me, subsidiary questions to the more basic question of whether God is. It's not without significance here that when God was revealed to Moses, the name of God was revealed to be, I am. I am said God to Moses. God is. And what God is, is not just the first person of the Trinity, but the first person of the verb to be. I am, says God. And because I am, you are, and so is he, she, it, they, and we. The God whose name is I am, is a first-person God. The God of first principles. If God is, then all else follows. I am, says God 
to Moses. That is my name. So for me, belief in God is my starting point for faith. Okay, let me put this another way. It's a bit like the John Wyndham sci-fi novels that I used to read when I was a teenager. I don't know if you've read any of these. Books like The Day of the Triffids or The Kraken Wakes and The Midwich Cuckoos and so on. Anyway, the thing about John Wyndham's stories is that they are cast as incredibly logical outworkings of one initial basic conceit. As a reader, you're asked fairly early in the story to believe one thing that might not actually be true. And then everything else follows logically. All that is needed for John Wyndham's stories to work is that one initial leap of faith. Come with me on this, he says to the reader. And then everything else falls into place. And for me, belief that God is, is that one initial leap of faith. Is God is or is God ain't, as Louis Jordan might put it? Well, for me, yeah, God is. I am, said God to Moses, inviting him to believe. And that same invitation to faith echoes down the millennia to us, inviting us to make that same initial leap of faith and then to see where it gets us. I've long concluded that it is only my belief in God, my decision to focus on something outside of my own existence, it is only that that keeps me from being the utterly self-centred, self-absorbed person that I know I have the capacity to be. It is only my conscious decision to worship the God that is other to me, that challenges my tendency to the sin of idolatry. It is only as I offer devotion to the God who is that my desire to place myself and my own concerns at the centre of my universe are confronted. But who or what then is this God? Part of the problem of trying to articulate the nature of God is that all language about God is inherently metaphorical and therefore also inevitably provisional. God's essence cannot be captured in finite human language. No words can do justice to the infinite hearts of the divine. And it's worth remembering here that God is a verb, not a noun. God cannot be defined by a proper name. The description of God as I am is a statement of God's activity. It's the first person of the verb to be. It's not a name by which God can be summoned or controlled. That way lies sorcery. But this God who is can, it seems, be experienced. 
God's actions can be encountered more surely than his name can be known. And I think that it is in the love of God that God is most surely to be encountered. I am, says God to Moses. And I think it turns out that what God is, is love. If God is, then God is love. And to assert this is to speak a powerful counter-testimony to those who continually try to speak into existence the many gods of hatred and violence and division. The mystery of the God who exists in love is made known to us through loving relationships. And this, of course, is the mystery of the Trinity. The insight of the early church that the God who is and the God who is love is also the God of eternal community. The first person of God, the I am of the leap of faith, is not the end of the story. Because the first person sits alongside the second and third persons. God is not just the divine father, but also the eternal son and the living spirit. The God who is beyond us is known to us in our world and through our lives, speaking salvation into being in our midst. The word that was in the beginning, calling all into being, becomes the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And I do believe that it is through a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ that the God of love is most fully known to us, as the Spirit of Christ bears witness to God made flesh in the stories of our lives. This, I think, is where that initial leap of faith takes us. At least it does within the Christian tradition. Of course, people believe for all sorts of different reasons. Some of us have simply inherited our belief system. Others will have arrived here by a process of conviction. Some of us have latent belief, which we've not quite managed to lose yet, despite our best efforts on occasions. Others of us, myself included, have what I can best define as reluctant belief. Do you know, I'd really love not to believe. I was was sat listening to uh, something, yesterday it was, talking about church and I thought you know it would be so much easier if I could just dismiss it all as a load of errant nonsense and get on with my life but I can't but I recognize that it can all be very troubling very confusing and very divisive and that's before we even start to address questions such as whether some sort of belief is necessary for salvation says Jesus in John's Gospel, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
it seems that for the author of this gospel, at least, belief in God is intimately connected to belief in Jesus. How do we know God? Well, says the author of the fourth gospel, we know him through Jesus. But how do we know Jesus? We know him by his spirit at work in our lives. Belief in God is not based on belief in creeds and confessions and catechisms. Neither is it based on security or stories or scriptures. Rather, belief emerges as the outcome of a lived relationship with the one through whom God is made known and in whom God is revealed. Belief is the product of a relationship. It is not the outworking of a theological conviction. And here I think it's important just to take a moment to clarify something significant. Not all beliefs are equal. I know that's not a very postmodern thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Not all beliefs are equal. Sometimes the concern for balance in our post-enlightenment society means we end up giving equal weight to very different orders of belief. So, for example, on the television news, the scientists representing the weight of scientific opinion may find themselves given equal billing with the lone representative of the minority view that disagrees with them. It's the same with matters of faith and belief. Asserting belief in God as revealed in Jesus is not the same thing as, for example, asserting belief in the effectiveness of homeopathy. Despite the very best efforts of some of the new atheist polemicists to equate belief in God to the equivalent status of belief in fairies at the bottom of the garden, they are not actually the same kind of order of belief. Francis Spufford makes this point eloquently. He says, Whether God exists or not is unprovable. So for an individual person, whether he exists or not is always going to be a matter of belief. But at the same time, and quite independently, he either exists or he doesn't, irrespective of whether or not he's believed in. He's a fact, or a non-fact, about the nature of the universe. So if you believe, you're making a bet that God exists, whether you believe or not. So it is that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. Here we meet Jesus offering the readers of John's Gospel a new and radical path to God. The Jews of the first century believed that the way to God was to be found in careful observance of the Jewish law, as revealed in their written scriptures. While the Greek and Roman religions of the time believed that the complexities of the pantheon of the gods revealed the path to divine knowledge. And over against both of these, Jesus offers something new, something radical. The way to God, says Jesus, is to be found through lived relationship with the one in whom God is revealed and through whom God is known. So God is not encountered through obedience or observance or ordinances. Rather, he is met in friendship and relationship and revelation. 
Jesus opens the way to God because in Jesus is to be found life in all its fullness. And in him is the truth that shatters all our defences and disarms all our pretences. In Christ there is nowhere to hide, because in Christ we are most fully known, even as we come to know that which is most fully other to us. When we open our eyes to see the revelation of God in Christ, we are united with the life and the truth that is at work in this complex, fallen, broken world, drawing all of creation into God's loving embrace. When we join our voices in worship, when we name Jesus as Lord, we do it not to make Jesus feel good about himself. We do it because we are sharing with Christ in the re-centering of creation. When we pray to Jesus, we do so not to abase ourselves before the Almighty, but in order to align ourselves and our lives and our world with the one in whom all earthly principalities and powers find their completion and fulfilment. And we do it in rejection of all other claims over our lives that might otherwise demand our allegiance. Belief for belief's sake is frankly pointless. But belief that emerges from a lived relationship with Christ Belief that is sustained by his spirit at work in our lives. Now that, that's something that has the capacity to change the world. And that is why, underneath all of this, do I believe in God? Yes, I do.